we see with the children of Israel such an amazing example here. In chapters 13 and 14, we talked about last week. Chapter 13, they sent spies into the land. Chapter 14, when the spies come back, the people rebel because 10 of the 12 spies do not have a good report. Their report is, is faithless. It's fearful. They see the foes. They see the fruit of the land, but the foes are bigger than the fruit. And you may recall that the fruit was pretty big. And they had to have a stick between two men just to carry a cluster of grapes. But the foes were bigger. Unfortunately, the foes were bigger than their view of God who had already done amazing things getting them out of Egypt. And so as we finished last week, uh, chapter 14, verse 45 says, The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Horma, you may recall, means devoted to destruction. It's an apt name for the children of Israel and where they ended up. Because rather than listen to the Lord, they devoted themselves to destruction. How did they do that? They forged ahead faithlessly. They already had the lack of faith at Kadesh. You may remember they, God brought the people there. They sent in the spies. God didn't actually tell them to send in the spies. Deuteronomy chapter 1 illuminates that. It wasn't God's idea that the spies go in, but He acquiesced to the people and they sent in the spies. The spies come back and they have a bad report and the people freak out and they have no faith. And so, so the Lord says, if you don't have the faith to go in, you're not going in. And since you sent, sent the spies for 40 days, I'm going to have you wander out here for 40 years until every person age 20 and over dies off. And those of you under the age of 20 will rise up a new generation having learned what it means to have faith. And then when I bring you to the border of the promised land, you'll go in and you'll take the land. And that's what happened with the people of Israel. But at this point, they're so faithless, they couldn't even go into the land. The Lord tells them to turn back. And at the end of chapter 14, they say, no, no, we're going to go ahead anyway. Okay, Lord, we sin. We confess. We recognize that. Let's go. We're, gonna, we're ready to take the land now. And Moses says, don't you do it. Don't you, you don't have the faith. Your faith is out there. We've seen how little faith you have. You do not have the faith to take this land. And so Moses and the Ark of the Covenant both stay in camp. And the Israelites go out. We're going to take the land. And they get whipped. And they end up devoted to destruction. You ever do that? You ever in your life forge ahead faithlessly? This whole phrase that you've heard probably many times in your life, blind faith, has nothing to do with Christianity. But it has everything to do with how we act oftentimes as Christians. We act with blind faith. We take that leap out there. And listen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, the faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, assurance and conviction don't sound like blind faith to me. If I'm assured of something, convicted that this is right, I know this is what the Lord wants me to do, that's faith. Blind faith is leaping out there not having a clue. Well, God, I don't know if you want me to do this, so I'm going to jump off the cliff and I'm going to see if you catch me. As opposed to waiting and listening and seeing if maybe God is saying, listen, don't jump off the cliff. There's a path down. <laughs> it's easier if you'll pay attention, if you'll listen. But again, we get so rushed that we forge ahead without assurance, without conviction, crying out, Lord, catch me lest I fall. And if I'm leaping, gang, that's blind faith. If I'm leaping, I'm not listening. And I don't believe the Lord wants us to leap. I don't believe faith is blind. I believe God tells us everything we need to know if we will listen. And we can base our faith on what He has told us. On what He has shown us. 
on what he has whispered to us, on what his word has made clear to us. I was talking to Cheryl about this today. I had absolutely no doubt whatsoever in my mind that we were supposed to start, that we were supposed to begin this thing we call the Bridge Christian Fellowship. But you know what? We didn't start until I had absolute confirmation of that. Not confirmation that it would be what, what it is today. I, I, I couldn't see that. But I knew that I knew that I knew we were supposed to start this church. How did you know, Rick? Because the Lord led that direction. We had assurance. We had conviction. It was absolutely clear. This is what we're supposed to do. And so we stepped out. But I'll tell you what. It was seven months prior to that that we spent in prayer not sure what the Lord wanted us to do. Not having a clue. And I was forging ahead with another option that God did not work out. That God stopped in mid-forge. That's exactly, by the way, what Satan tempted Jesus to do. Take a leap. Do you remember it? Matthew chapter 4, the story of Jesus' temptation. The devil took Jesus, it tells us, Matthew 4, 5, into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan even quotes scripture to Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, On the other hand, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words... Get out of my face. (laughs) Because I'm not listening to you. I'm listening to the Lord. And the Lord didn't tell me to stand on the pinnacle of the temple and take a flying leap. That's blind faith. Leaping without listening. God always gives us reason to believe. He always gives us indication for faith. And you know what? That's important because at times when we step out in faith, if we've had that assurance, if we've had that conviction, sometimes when we step out in faith, we get out there a little bit and we're like, Lord, are you sure? And we can look back with the assurance and with the conviction and go, yeah, I'm sure. I am supposed to be here. I don't see right now what God is doing, but I know I'm supposed to be right where I am. And that's faith. Which is why in light of Israel's faith failure, chapter 15 is so precious. It's so wonderful. You, you may see the, the heading, if you've got headings in your scriptures there, above chapter 15 it says, Laws for Canaan. And you think, huh? We just had this incredible kind of intense story, the last three, four chapters, and all of a sudden we get to chapter 15 after their mammoth failure, and we don't have the story continuing. The flow stops right here, and we see laws for Canaan. The law of the sojourner, if you look ahead, and Sabbath-breaking punish. I mean, this doesn't sound like an exciting continuance of the story, but it's exactly what God does. In light of Israel's abject failure, He takes them immediately back to His Word. Back to the Word. Now you'd think after their failure at Kadesh, the people would sojourn in a state of perpetual repentance, that they would be sorrowful, that they would go back by the way of the Red Sea and be on their faces every day crying out, Lord, we're so sorry for what we've done. They didn't. In fact, they're going to spend 40 more years in perpetual rebellion. They're going to rebel time and time again. Amos chapter 5 verse 25 tells us, the Lord speaking says, Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? The answer is no. He says, You also carried along Sikuth, your king, which is Molech. Molech, you remember Molech, the god that they sacrificed children to? Molech in the the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem. But he says, you brought along your king Molech and Cayun, which is an Egyptian idol. 
You brought your idols along, your images, the star of your gods which you made for yourself. God says, did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness? No, you brought your idols instead. You worshipped your idols. Even after all that happened, they still clung to their idols. Stephen declared the same truth about the children. Acts chapter 7, verse 42. He says, God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Molech and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. And so during the years of the of the wilderness wandering is 40 years after all that had occurred from the time they got out of Egypt to the time they got into the wilderness they still were clinging to idols they still were faithless in God and faithful only to their idols by the way not only didn't the people sacrifice to the Lord for those 40 years after all we read in Leviticus remember the, the first five chapters detail all the sacrifices and burnt offerings and how it's supposed to work and the people had the tabernacle with them but they didn't sacrifice for 40 years. The sacrifices didn't happen. They just didn't do it. You know what else they didn't keep for 40 years? Passover. As far as we can tell in Scripture, they had Passover on Passover night, Exodus chapter 12. And then again, before they left Mount Sinai, God said, celebrate the Passover. So they did. And then as they head off to the Promised Land, have their failure, and back into the wilderness, they would not celebrate the Passover again until the book of Joshua, when they're about to go in and take the land. This is a faithless people. And God does something absolutely stunning here. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15, watch this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. And stop right there. Amazing. Before even saying one other thing, what is God doing here? He does a couple of things. The first thing he does is he reiterates the promise. These are people who are flat on their face in failure. And he says, Now, children, gather around. I have something to tell you. When you go into the promised land, in other words, the promise is still good. The promise still stands. You are still going to go into the land. The children will enter in. Why? They certainly don't deserve it. But Israel will enter the land because God said they will. His very name depends on it. As do all of His promises depend on his name Isaiah 48 verse 9 says for the sake of my name I delay my wrath and for my praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tested you in the furnace of affliction and for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another now this is very important in understanding the character of God and the way he works with us and our character by contrast to God's I cannot listen to this I cannot detour God's purpose for my life I cannot detour God's purpose. He is going to fulfill His purpose in this world. I can't detour that, but I can delay the blessings. I can't detour His purpose, but I can delay His blessings. The children of Israel are still going to go into the land. They're going to have to wait 40 years. And actually, the older children of Israel aren't going to go into the land, but the younger will. Israel as a nation is still going in. But the blessing has been delayed, yet not detoured. 
And God's singular purpose for you and for me is clearly presented to us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Doesn't that sound like a Pauline phrase right there? Let me repeat it again. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. What are you saying? He says that is, he explains it, the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up of everything in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In other words, simply, the mystery of God, God's purpose, God's plan in your life and in mine and in this world, His purpose is all things in Christ. And by the way, that's the secret of life. All things in Christ. All things in Christ. If I'm walking in Christ, guess what? I am in the flow. I'm in the current of God's purpose. What's God's purpose? All things in Christ. So as I walk in Christ, I'm in that flow. As I walk against Christ, as I focus on my things, anything else, gang, and I'm a salmon, I'm swimming against the current, I'm not doing, I'm not following, and so I'm delaying God's purpose. I'm delaying it. Not detouring it, it's still going to happen, but I put it on a serious delay. And this is the will of the Father for us. That's why the Hebrew writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Christ. Focus on Him. Think about Him. Consider Him. Walk with Him. That is the direction that all things are going. You know how philosophers and people will say today that all the rivers are leading out to the sea? Well, guess what? There is a little bit of truth to that. Not that all beliefs will lead to the same place, for there are going to be people who are sorely mistaken and find out so one day. But all things will culminate with the realization of the person of Jesus Christ when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything is flowing that direction. There are a lot of people swimming against that current trying to deny that but it will happen God's plan Jesus in the world will happen and God invites you and I to engage and to be part of that plan to swim with the current Larry and I were talking a little bit about this idea does God need me and I submit to you again and I I was clarifying I hope I don't mess it up again here from our conversation's sake Larry but I still believe God doesn't need me quote unquote He will fulfill His plan whether I decide to accept it or not. He is going to make it happen because He is God and He is sovereign. However, the other side of that same coin is that God wants me to engage, invites me to engage. And the moment I do, guess what? He uses me in amazing ways. We will turn around, each of us, if we're walking in the flow, swimming in the flow of Jesus, ultimately we're going to turn around and we're going to see all that God did and we're going to be blown away. And we're going to say, wow, he did kind of need me. I I, I was of some use to him. My life had amazing value. But I'll tell you that value is because you're swimming in the current with Jesus. You're in the flow. That was his plan then. It's his plan now to bring the people into the land just as he promised. His plan now, Colossians 1.26, Paul says, The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and here's the mystery again, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that God can reside in me, with me. There's an amazing thing in a little tip-off to Sunday night's Revelation study. 
We're going to be talking about the temple and that Jerusalem temple. The Jews even today are desiring to build that temple again. But they're missing something. You're looking at the temple of God right now. Maybe a little shabby. You know, could use a little work. I understand that. Each of us may feel that way from time to time. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That right now I'm a walking, living, breathing temple of the Lord. He no longer needs the one built by human hands because he's got the heart. That is the temple. Christ in me. That's the mystery. That's the wonder. Christ in me. And so the Lord starts right off here and reiterates his great promise. He reiterates his great promise to the people before anything else in the midst of their failure. And by the way, that's what he does with us. In the middle of our failure, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When I'm in the worst of the worst situation, that's when Jesus said, I love you. I'm dying for you. And so with the people of Israel, they're in the middle of their failure and God says, the plan is going on. You're still going. The promised land is still waiting. He reiterates his promise. But then the second thing he does is he communicates, listen to this, his great patience. He reiterates a grand promise. Now he's going to communicate his great patience. And he does it in a unique way. He starts talking about offerings. Beginning again, he says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you enter the land where you're going to live, which I'm giving you, make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or a freewill offering, or in your appointed times, to make a soothing aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. Verse 4, The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. You're thinking, wait, are we back in Leviticus again? Verse 5, he says, And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen. That would not be a binny hen, it would be a fourth of a hen of wine, a different kind of hen, with the burnt offering for the sacrifice for each lamb. Verse 6, Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. And for a drink offering you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you present or prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then you shall offer the, with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half of a hen of oil. And you shall offer as the drink offering one half of a hen of wine, and as an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord, thus it shall be done for each ox, for each ram, or for each of the male lambs, or of the goats. According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do for everyone according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, that's all the Israelites, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now, this just seems to me out of place, as so often it does when I first give a cursory read description. I read this and I think, that would have been better off back in the first chapter, five chapters of Leviticus. And you know what, there's something in here, and I don't have time to specifically point every little detail out, but all this stuff, though it's been talked about before, God adds a few things here. He adds a few little changes. They're real subtle things. But if you compare this, especially the grain offering in verses 4 and 5, compare it to the grain offering in Leviticus chapter 2, there are a couple of additions. Little extra things that God throws in there. What is He doing? He is communicating His great patience. Listen, God is still bringing His word in spite of their faithlessness. 
And you might say again, looking at this, if, if you were with Israel, and you were beat down at Hormah, and you're wiped out, and all of a sudden the Lord's speaking to Moses, and he's talking about these laws of the offerings, you're going, Lord, well, you know, if, if it was me, if I was the Lord at this point, all 13 of those verses would have been condemnation. I would have been shaking my finger going, See, I told you this is exactly what it is. What were you doing? You stupid Israel. I cannot even believe. And off I would have gone. God never goes there. He just starts to reiterate his word and to bring little extra things that they need to know. Giving them more of his word. Why? Well, for one thing, God's word is potent. It is about as potent a thing as we have as Christians. The Word of God is so effective. And yet we water it down with the words of man. The Word of God is all we need to share with people for them to understand. Isaiah 55 verse 10. The Lord says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. He says, my word is the deal. It's like rain and snow. You know how rain and snow works? Up on my property, just on the hill over here, there were some tiny little weeds, tiny little things. That, you know, before that, at the end of the year, last year, tiny little, not, nothing big, just a few little, and it's been raining a lot lately. And as it starts to try and want to be spring, I'm looking out there and I'm going, i got to call Leo again. I gotta get him out here to clip this this is getting bad. These things explode in growth. That's what happens, and God compares his word to those things that grow. I mean, look around the northwest, you know how fast things grow. I had a patch of alder trees in our home in Anacortes. Little tiny little they're about that tall. And I figure, oh, I'll just let them go for a season. And the next season I was out there with a hacksaw cutting down like these ten foot, eleven foot alder trees. Unbelievable. Because the rain and the snow makes things grow and God says, it's a picture of my word. It's what my word does. It's potent. You start planting the seeds of my word into somebody and back up and give them room. They're going to grow. They're going to grow. I had a great conversation with Laura Pierce. I don't know, I may be sharing this a second time here. I, I don't know if I shared it on Sunday or not, but just talking about the whole idea of, of where the bridge is at right now. And the fact that the people seem to be pretty hungry for the word. And people want to be, in fact, the children's ministry on Sundays, one of the challenges we have with getting people to sign up, and this is not a commercial, but one of the challenges is people want to hear the word. They don't want to be over teaching kids because they want to hear the word. And I think that's a great problem to have. Because ultimately, you know what's going to happen? The word's going to start getting in. It's going to start settling in. We did talk about this Sunday night just a little bit. And the potency of the word is going to start moving us. And people are going to start doing things not because they really even want to, but because they have to. Because the word, Jeremiah says, is like a fire in my bones and I can't keep it in. I've got to respond. I've got to react. God's word is absolutely potent. And I know I'm totally rabbit trailing here, but stick with me. How many times... Getting back on task here. How many times have I been faithless to the Lord and yet He with great patience continues to bring me His Word? I can be so out of line with God and He keeps bringing me back. Look, just read this passage. Here's a verse for you to consider. And in those moments, I am stunned that why would He even care enough to keep bringing me His Word? I'm out here. What I need is a good scolding or maybe even a spanking. And He doesn't do that. He just keeps bringing me the Word, bringing me the Word, bringing me the Word with incredible patience. That's God. He is so patient with us. 
Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And by the way, this is a great relationship example for us to follow. Let me read this verse again. Listen in. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Patience. You know, there are a couple of words for patience in the Bible. A couple of words that are used to describe patience in the New Testament. One word is the Greek word hupomoni. Hupomoni? Hupomoni. I don't know. That's close. It's not the important word because it basically just has to do with endurance. It's a physical mental word. A word for endurance. But the other word for patience which is more often than not in the King James Version it's translated long-suffering that word for patience is always listen to me always used in terms of relationships one person to another or God to us Paul saying you should be long-suffering toward each other patient toward each other the word and this is worth writing down because it's a great word is macro thumeo macro thumeo If you're writing it down just in notes, it's M-A-K-R-O-T-H-U-M-E-O. That would be the English version of it. Macrothumeo. And it literally means long-enduring temper. Long-enduring temper. What do you mean? It it, it carries the significance of of putting off my anger. Holding back my passion for my rights and for what I want done. Holding off long-suffering. It's the perfect translation for it. The NASB and other translations just say patience. But it's long-suffering. And God is toward us long-suffering. He certainly is toward Israel in this situation. The fact that he can go right back to his word and begin repeating to them what they need to know about the sacrifices. He is long-suffering. He is communicating a great patience. It's the refusal gang, this word macro thumeo, macro, where we get our word for long, our big, macro thumeo, the word thumeo meaning passion or anger, long putting off of anger, long suffering. It is the refusal gang to return insult for insult. It's the refusal when people in your life do something harmful towards you, it's the refusal to return it. It's the refusal even to defend yourself or stand up. It's just saying, Lord, I am going to be like you are, long-suffering. I will be patient. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 tells us that love is macrothumeo. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Real love is a love that says, I will put off. But see, it's a problem for us because we live in the world of microwave. And Intel inside. And FedEx. And TiVo. And we don't even know the meaning of the word patience because everything is now. It's immediate. I have this Bible study software, Logos software, and I have to type in when I want to go to a passage and I hit enter and it's like takes like three seconds to get there and it drives me nuts. It's not fast enough. Come on, I want to hit the button. It's there, right there. I want it there before I hit the button. That's what I want. I'm looking for the computer that that anticipates what my needs are. So before I even start typing, it's already coming up on the screen. That's what, I, and that still wouldn't be fast enough for us because we're rushing and we're pushing and we're trying to get there so quickly. And God says, before you forge ahead, would you pause for a moment and learn long suffering? Because I'll tell you where it gets brutal. It gets brutal in our relationships. 
when we're so used to things being fixed instantaneously or working instantaneously and then we turn to our relationships and guess what the heart doesn't work that way it doesn't what I want done by tomorrow could take months in a relationship setting it takes time for me to pause and listen as a pastor I see this all the time I learned this the hard way whenever I surge forward whenever I'm ambitious and suddenly someone gets run over and I never intended to but they get run over anyway and then I want to fix it but I want to fix it quick because i got a lot of other things to get to <laughs> you know what I'm talking about and God says my example is one of long suffering when someone wrongs me I turn around and I bring them the word again he communicates an amazing patience by the way that word patience makrothumeo long suffering it ranks number four on the list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter 5 right between peace and kindness kind of a bridge between peace and kindness is makrothumeo long suffering and Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 he says therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace oh that we would learn this patience with each other you want to see a church that is so overflowing with love that everyone who walks in the door just constantly feels it gets caught up in that flow it is a church folks that is full of people who are long suffering that alone would change so much of how we relate if we could be long suffering well God is long suffering 2 Timothy 2.13 says if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself and this is the character of God this is an aspect of God that's so important that we know and understand his amazing patience Peter picks up on it 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is macro thumeno he is patient long suffering towards you not wishing for anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance and I want to encourage you to think about tonight who can I practice long suffering on who in my family who among my friends is right now just driving me nuts but needs a little bit of macro thumeno of long suffering patience on my part and who needs for me to just keep bringing them, them the word well let's go on here verse 14 <laughs> if an alien so I just had to talk about that because it just struck me today by the way this Bible study was written yesterday I came back and looked at it today that whole thing about macrothemetho today it was just today I had to share verse 14 <laughs> if an alien sojourns with you or or one who may be among you throughout your generation and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord just as you do so he shall do and that highlighted in my Bible just as you do so he shall do so he who shall do the foreigner the alien in other words the Gentile you Jews you have a system here in terms of offerings and gifts and all that if a foreigner wants to join up and travel with you that's fine but he's got to do it your way don't make concessions he goes on 
Verse 15, As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you. And for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There's one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. What God is declaring here to the people of Israel is simple. A foreigner is welcome to come along. However, he comes along your way. He comes along the way I have set up for you. If he's going to travel with you, there's one law for everybody who follows my lead. And I see an amazing picture here that I think we may have missed in the church. In the church where we try so hard to be seeker friendly and have the door wide open and change what we are to try and attract people to the Lord. And he says, that's not going to work. That's not the way it's done. You be who you are in me. You do it my way. And they're going to see that and want it. But if we water down who we are, if we try to make ourselves look like something that the church is not, then guess what? People are going to look at it and go, well, why is that different than the world? How's that different than the Kiwanis? I could join the Lions Club and have that. Is it just a social group? Paul says Ephesians 4 verse 4 There is one body and one spirit and you are called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And he says you don't change the character of who you are to meet the needs of the foreigner. If the foreigner wants to come along he is welcome but he comes along the way I have prescribed for you to be. Now, does that sound like we just slammed the door shut on evangelism? Absolutely not. In fact, it's the opposite. What I have discovered in my short time in life is the more the church is the church, the more people want to be involved with that. The more the church is like the world, eh, take it or leave it. I've used this example before. I was a youth pastor in Anaheim, California, 10 minutes from Disneyland, and I could not compete with the entertainment factor. Which youth ministry is often about the entertainment of our kids. And I tried, you know, Banana Night just didn't compare to Space Mountain. Who knew? But I learned something amazing there. It's that the more I tried to compete, the less effective I was. But when we just pulled back and said, you know, we're not getting kids here on Wednesday night by playing stupid games. Let's just teach the word. Something amazing happened. They started showing up. Because it was different. Because it wasn't like anything they were getting at school or even at home or among their friends. What, you mean there's someone actually talking about loving my friends? Loving people my age that, that when I hang out I'm not supposed to just tear people down? I'm rabbit trailing again. I know that. Let's get back to this. One body. One spirit. We're the body of Christ. We're called. And we're called to act as such. I was sitting in a meeting several years ago and someone actually said as we were talking about being relevant in the culture as we were talking about the church being more, you know, open to people someone actually said in the meeting and I quote why don't we not even call ourselves a church? And it just struck me that we had gotten too far out because I thought, wait a minute why do we have to call ourselves a church? Because that's what we are? Because that's what we are? See, when our church thinking gets so far out that we want to change everything so much so that it just doesn't seem like we want to kind of trick people into the gospel, when we get that far out that we don't even want to call ourselves what we are, gang, that is a dangerous place. 
Again, we're not a social club. We're not the why. We're the body of Christ. So how do we act like the body of Christ? Listen, whether it's for the sojourner or the foreigner, the standard is the same. When someone walks in the door, you want to know what I want them to see on a Sunday morning? I want them to see this, Acts 2.42, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's that simple. And all the other stuff, dang, it's extra. All the other ministries and programs and things that we work so hard on in so many churches, it's extra. It is not the main thing. The main thing is the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. It's, it's that being together centered around God's Word and, and focused on God's Spirit. And one other little thing you might throw into the mix... Jesus says, John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you do a great evangelistic program. If you love each other. If you love each other. See what? You gather together and you study my word and you pray for each other and you worship and you just love each other and you will change the world. You will radically alter the lives of everybody who comes into that environment. Going on, verse 17. So he says, there's one law. It's for you. It's for the foreigner among you. He's welcome to come along, but he's got to do it the way I have showed you. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 17, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land... When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the food of the land, you shall lift up an offering, that's literally a heave offering, to the Lord. Lift up a heave offering to the Lord. He says, On of the first of your dough you shall lift up a cake as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. And I think this is just great. I mean, this hardly needs anything. Just the way it's... Listen to verse 21 again and tell me where you think I'm going to go with this. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord. (laughs) More baking. That's right. Listen to what he's saying here. I mean, first of all, what's a heave offering? This is not like you eat and you get a little sickly, you know, heave offering. No, a heave offering would be you go to the threshing floor and you take some of the grain and literally you heave it. You throw it up in the air. You take it and the first of, of, the, of the grain that you have, you go, this is the Lord's. And you throw it up in the air and off it goes. Heave offering. Or it says you make a cake and you lift it up. Again, as an offering. Uh, this, this first of what we... In other words, what he's saying is this. It's very simple. If you're eating of the food of the land which I've provided, then give the first part of it back to me. Why, Lord? So that you remember where it came from. So that you remember where you got it in the first place. I can say this a million times. I'll probably say it a million times more in the life of this church. But gang, my money is not my money. Nothing that I have is mine. Nothing. It's not mine. My house is not mine. My cars are not mine. My paychecks are not mine. Everything that we have, every red cent that you think you own or that we hoard or that we put into bank accounts or that we tuck away in securities, dang, it's not ours. And the only reason we have what we have is because God's gracious. And so he says, listen, if you're eating of the food of the land, give up the first of your dough. You give me the dough, I'll give you the bread. All right? It's really that simple. Now you may be saying, okay, Rick, are you stretching this a bit? Turn to the book of Haggai for a moment. It's a great name, by the way. I love Haggai. 
Haggai, toward the end, in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai, it's actually page 955 in my Bible, I know that does you no good, book of Haggai, or Haggai, chapter 1 and verse 3, and just watch this, the word of the Lord came, by, and by the way, if you need to get home, I know it's about 8.40 right now, and I'll try not to be more than an hour more, okay? <laughs> Book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? He's talking about the temple. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have Now, this, there's a principle here. You have sown much. But harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. I love the way the Lord talks here. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. Can you relate to that tonight? (laughs) And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Who can relate to that one right there? When every paycheck comes in, it goes right out. You're thinking, where did it go? Cheryl bought a pink Taekwondo sweatshirt tonight. We'll be talking about that when I get home. (laughs) He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says there's a direct correlation gang between what's coming in and how I'm giving or not giving. And God's prescription, as bizarre as this sounds, is if you don't have enough in your life, you need to give more. If you're not making ends meet, the Lord would say, not me, not Rick. The Lord would say, if you're not making ends meet in your family, perhaps you should look at your giving record. Perhaps you should consider tithing. Now you don't understand, Rick. I can't afford to give anything. And you're saying 10%? No, I'm not saying that at all. The Lord is. He's saying otherwise you're going to work, you're going to function as though a purse with holes. That will be it. This is God speaking. There is a spiritual principle here that goes beyond the physical. As a great pastor friend of mine once said, you will never be able to work this out on paper. If you sit down with your budget and you start to work it out and go, okay, where can I get 10%? You won't. It won't happen. God says, hey, bring me the first of the dough. You bring the dough, I will give you the bread. Well, that sounds kind of like quid pro quo. Again, this is not my word. It's God's word. Go back to Numbers chapter 15. And I also realize, by the way, I'm probably preaching to the choir. Because if you're here Wednesday night, you're a student of the word. And if you're a student of the word, you probably know these things. So be encouraged that the best way to enjoy the bread that God wants to bring you is allow Him to handle the dough. Okay? Moving on, verse 22. He says, But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day which the Lord gave, uh, from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering going on he says then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel and they will be forgiven 
for it was an error and they have brought their offering an offering by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their error so all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven and the alien who sojourns among them for it happened to all the people through error we're talking about unintentional sin people sinning they don't even realize they did oh no what do we do God has it covered verse 27 also if one person sins unintentionally then he shall offer one female one year old female goat for a sin offering and verse 28 and this is wonderful the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally making atonement for him that he may be forgiven and then he reiterates you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien which sojourns among them what's this talking about the word gang is this is pardon for the sins of ignorance sinning in ignorance those sins are all atoned for they're washed away same as they are today by the blood of sacrifice by the blood of sacrifice God says hey you're going to sin by the way, this is a great answer for someone who says, well, what if you give your life to Jesus, you're cleansed by the blood, you're baptized, sanctified, redeemed, and all that, and you sin again. Guess what? You're going to. That's going to happen. And God says, I understand that. You have a sin nature that is, is at war with your spiritual nature, and you're going to sin. So what do I do, Lord? You bring it. And you're forgiven. The sacrifice of Jesus, it was sufficient to cover all of those sins. You are forgiven, washed by the blood of the Lamb. In verse 29, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. There's one law for the Jew and the Gentile. So anyone who comes... By the way, there's only basically two types of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Actually, a third type for the last 2,000 years, and Christians. And God says it doesn't matter who you are. You bring to the Lord what you've done, who you are. Your sin, it's forgivable, it's forgiven. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man, uh, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, by contrast to that, verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. The word defiantly is an interesting word. It literally means to sin with a high hand. High-handed sinning. What does that mean? Let me show you this quickly. The best commentary, as you know, on the Bible is the Bible itself. So we go back to Exodus chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you quickly. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 8. The children of Israel are going out of the land of Egypt. Chapter 14 of Exodus is that, is that Exodus. They're leaving. And on the way out, listen to what it says. It says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. It's the same word. That word boldly there in verse 8 of chapter 14 is the same word that's translated defiantly in Numbers 15.30. What does it mean? It means with a high hand. It means to be cocky. The problem was, and I hadn't thought about this before, but it says in verse 9 of Exodus 14 that the Egyptians chased after them. Why did the Egyptians chase after them? Because Israel taunted them. If they had just kind of gone out, they might have just been fine. 
If they had, you know, done what the Lord said, they plundered the Egyptians, they took the gold and all that stuff, and then they just quietly and humbly left the land of Egypt, the Egyptians might have been like good riddance. But they went out going, nah, 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 nah. Pharaoh can't touch us, firstborn all dead, nah, nah. dead livestock, flies, frogs, nah, nah. you know. This is what they were doing. They went out boldly, defiantly, with a high hand, you know. See you later. I did the same thing. I probably still do the same thing occasionally today, but when Sharon and I were in college, we used to drive back and forth between Abilene, Texas, and Dallas, Texas, about a three-hour drive. And much of it on I-20, it was a two-lane highway, you know, going 65, 70, you know, 90 miles an hour down this road. And Cheryl would fall asleep in my little Toyota Corolla, and I'd be driving along, and she'd wake up, and invariably, she would find me pinned between three trucks, you know, Big wheelers there. There'd be one to my right and one in front and one behind. And it's because I was sinning with a high hand. Um, not, not what you're thinking, but I was being defiant. I, because these long hills would go up and the trucks would go up these long, long hills and they'd slow down and I hated getting behind them so I'd zoom around in front of them and then we'd start going down the hill and they'd try and go as fast as they could go down the hill so they could get up plenty of speed for the next hill. Well, I'd get in front of them going down the hill and slow down on purpose. I was young and foolish. I was in college. I was being defiant, me and my little tiny Toyota Corolla that they could have squished with just one of their 18 wheels. And so I'd slow down. So they get angry and they call ahead to their guys, and their guy up there would slow down, and the next thing I'd be pinned in. You know? And here's Cheryl waking up going, Did you do it again? I can't believe, you know? So I understand this whole idea of, of being cocky, of being defiant, of sinning with a high hand, this bold, blatant sin. And that person who sins that way is cut off. God says there's, there's no forgiveness for defiance, for someone who just says, in your face, whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care, Lord, what you want me to do. I am going to live my life my way. You know that Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven in the scriptures. And the reason is he wanted to make sure that everybody, even the most rebellious heart, would know where rebellion leads to being cut off. That kind of defiance, defiant living, is what gets people cut off. It's not that God doesn't have enough grace. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. John says, and we've read part of this passage before, it's so important to understand. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. But the one who practices sin is of the devil. Now listen, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, each and every one of us. But there is a difference between sins of ignorance, sins of my sin nature getting out ahead of me, and sins of practice. A practiced sin is a sin of lifestyle. It's saying, you know what, I'm homosexual and that's just the way I am and whether or not God likes it, that's the way I'm going to live my life. That is defiance. That is a sin of defiance. Someone says, you know what, I'm a Christian, I go to church, but I'm going to sleep around all I want because you know what, God will forgive me. That is a sin of active rebellion. It's a lifestyle that is in defiance. And we could cover all kinds of ground with this, but the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. 
Because God's seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now that throws a lot of people off because they say, if I'm born of God, I shouldn't sin, right? No. If you're born of God, you're going to have failures. But if you're born of God, you are not going to practice sin. And you get the difference? Can we move on from that? He says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And by the way, practicing righteousness, that's being in the flow that I was talking about before. The flow of Christ. Being in the current of Christ. Now, we're going to finish. Uh, Verses 32 through 36, we're just going to skip because I'll talk to you about it on Sunday. Very interesting story. Tell you this much that there's going to be a man picking up sticks on the Sabbath and he gets stoned for it. So the message Sunday is sticks and stones, and we'll come back to it and take a look at that. But verse 37 now tells us the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Now really tune into this, the last thing. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at. And remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. So that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What's this about? Last thing that's interesting here. By the way, we'll get on into chapter 16 and one of the biggest rebellions yet, so they're still not listening and God still keeps bringing His word. But this whole chapter that is inset here is so important that we see how God responds to sin. He keeps bringing His word. He is patient. He is long-suffering. And as it ends, He gives them a mnemonic device mnemonic, a memory device, something to help them. Think about it. The Israelites are walking along. They're stumbling in the wilderness. They're in the dusty, dry, sun-baked land. And as they walk along with their heads down in those moments of depression, guess where their eyes go? To the tassels that are on their clothing. Those blue tassels hanging there. And every time they saw the blue tassel, they were reminded of one thing. That God is my God. The Lord is my God. They would see these tassels kind of swinging back and forth and the dust kicked up. Maybe the rest of the clothes dirty, but those blue tassels hanging there. And by the way, in Israel and among ultra-Orthodox Jews today, they're going back that direction. On the prayer shawls and on the clothing, you're seeing more and more of these blue tassels. What's the idea here behind them? Remember again, chapter 15 follows chapter 14. The failure of Israel followed by God bringing His word, the Lord responding and continuing to be focused on their future. And He ends this little section for us, I believe, perfectly with these little blue tassels. So they won't forget. So they won't forget. The blue tassels are for the purpose of remembering. Now I've talked recently about preterism. A few weeks ago, there was a uh, prophecy update dealing with preterism, and you can get the CD on that. It's available if you want it. You want to study it a little bit. But the whole idea is what's also called Kingdom Now philosophy. That we are in the kingdom now. That everything that needed to happen happened back in AD 70, and now we're walking happily along in the kingdom, and Satan is bound, and you know what bunk that is. However... This whole idea gets into our psyche and we begin to think about kingdom now or we think about living my best life now. 
We start thinking about that it's all about today. And the more we focus on today, especially when life is in the wilderness, the more depressing it gets. And so God gives Israel, and gives us as well, a memory device. For Israel, it's a blue tassel. Gang, in the Bible, the color blue is always a picture of heaven. It's always a picture of heaven. When you see the blue on the tabernacle, when you see the blue woven into different places, it is a portrait of a picture of heaven. And the Lord would say, and I I believe this for us today, that in the fullness of time, when all things in the flow of Christ will come back to that one place, what is the ultimate, what is the final destiny, what is it that God wants us to focus on more than anything else? My answer to you is heaven. Now I know there are those who disagree with that. There are those who would say, and I quote, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You heard that before. I propose to you the opposite. You're no earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. And the more heavenly minded we are, guess what? Things like depression. Things like frustration. Things like impatience. The opposite of long suffering. Those tend to decrease the more I focus on heaven. The more I think about, the more I look at those blue tassels, that picture of heaven. Jesus put it this way, John 14.1 Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Is your heart troubled? Are you despairing in any place of your life? Do you find yourself down lately? I, you know, I, I'll tell you this just recently looking at, at life and stuff I, I was a couple of days ago just feeling a little down. And I realized it was because I'm not sure what the next big thing is. And the Lord said, Hello, (laughs) blue tassel time. What's the next big thing, Rick? I prepare a place for you. And I am coming to receive you to where I am. And I promise you, gang, this world, if we can understand this, is not our home. Just a passing through. We're sojourners here. And as the eyes of young Israel would scan that wilderness in their long 40 years, they could look down at the tassels and remember the Lord is their God and the Lord will bring them into the land. There is hope. There is a future for them. The reminder of heaven. And how do you overcome this? Listen, when you have the blues, here's how you overcome the blues. By thinking about the blue. My blue heaven. The place that I'm headed. Heaven is, gang, the key to joy on earth. One last verse and we're done. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed... Then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled.